0: Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. We're here with Santa Cruz Bicycle Hit Squad, Keegan Swenson. Hey, Keegan. Hey. And Pivot Cycle and DT Swiss, Hannah Finchamp. Hi, everyone. And Head Coach, Chad Timmerman. Hey, Chad. Hey,
1: everybody. Hi.
0: We have some hot takes today. We're going to talk about recovery beers, gravel racing, and um, more spicy takes for our local pros to talk about. All right. Let's get into it. Chad, beer is good for recovery. Hot take. What do you got?
1: <clears throat> okay. So this decidedly was not a hot take. This is going to be a little bit of a dive, <laughs> but just, just a shallow dive just because there's a fair, am- fair amount of information to share here. Uh, my title, most of my deep dive, shallow dives, whatever, uh, with, with a little personal title and this one got, uh, in defense of beer, otherwise neglected research regarding its other benefits. So this would be the title of the paper, should I ever pursue a master's or a doctorate or something. (laughs) But I do want to kick off with an an important disclaimer because I do not want my flippant tone misinterpreted. So it's acknowledged that alcohol is a psychoactive drug. It is a depressive. It does bear a potential for dependence and abuse. So we're not talking about overconsumption. One to two drinks, reasonable quantities, reasonable ABVs or alcohol contents, always in moderation. Okay, this is assumed. And I'm not making light of alcohol abuse or alcohol addiction. I'm simply trying to answer the question, can beer promote, enhance, facilitate, whatever, endurance exercise recovery. Okay? So with that in mind, first a callback to a previous podcast where we did touch on hydration and looked at a study that observed numerous beverages and their hydration qualities. And they even assigned it a little uh, quality rating on a particular – Index, and they found that low ABV, so low alcohol by volume beer, and this was pretty low, 4%, hydrated just as well as water. But single caveat, they only tested with a single beer. So again, moderation clearly is key here. My takeaway then, as it is now, is that beer does bear a potential to rehydrate. Pretty limited context, but true nonetheless. Secondly, beer has minor nutritional value and also other benefits. Science says, and and has for some time now, that moderate alcohol intake is associated with lower rates of cardiovascular disease and reduced mortality. Okay? This is real. This is like two decades worth of real. Also, beer is greater in protein content and B vitamins than wine. And I'm not here to harp on wine, but it is the critical darling of those who indulge for so-called health benefits. Also, Mm -hmm. Beer's antioxidant content is on par with, and sometimes even surpasses that of wine. So take that wine. Also, <laughs> also, one study looked at the biofunctions of the phenolic compounds, so the the polyphenols, right? What one of the things we're chasing. But they did it in brewers' spent grains. So, admittedly, these are the leftovers; they're not in the beer, but they were used to make the beer. And they found antioxidant, anti-carcinogenic, anti-atherogenic. The CBD that I just mentioned. And anti-inflammatory activities. So, fake point: beer isn't just about getting drunk; it can also be about your health. Real point: antioxidants and anti-inflammatories are part and parcel with recovery. Okay, touch more on those antib- antib- uh, antioxidants. Some beers—box, uh, abbey ales, wheat beers—and I'm sure there are others—are amongst the highest in antioxidants. And those are those phenolic compounds, polyphenols. Again, shallow dive. Uh, seems like this has to do with the twice fermentation process. So these beers get fermented, not once, but twice. And it only applies to bottle beers because if I'm not mistaken, the fermentation continues in the bottle, not in the can. So my takeaway here is that anything that enhances antioxidant activity, but not too much again, moderation gets my vote. Next point, alcoholic beverages are fermented foods beverages technically but ethanol is a product of fermentation look it up i mean it's why alcoholic beverages exist some beers typically but not always strong beers even contain active cultures of probiotic yeast cultures that actually survive the brewing process right doesn't the 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 catch appears that is associated with higher alcohol beers but not in all cases because hogarden was on this list and hogarden is a I think it's a Belgian white and it barely cracks five. It cracks five at all.
0: Pretty low ABV, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, so just the, maybe just the twice fermentation process and the bottling. Point is, is that some beers actually bear a potential to improve gut health and better cut gut health probably can't hurt your recovery. And then in related and very recent research, there's a 2022 double blind randomized controlled trial that looked at the impact of non-alcoholic and alcoholic beer In this case, it was 5.2%, so not high, on gut attributes. And they observed that both of them increased gut microbiota diversity. That is a buzzy term. And (laughs) a specific marker of intestinal barrier function, something that's especially relevant to endurance athletes. Suggesting, their words, the effects of beer on gut microbiota modulation are independent of alcohol and may be mediated by beer polyphenols. So my take here... Is that beer with or without alcohol improve gut health and that could very well help recovery, right? And before you even suggest the use of non-alcoholic beers, boo, these are often (laughs) the lowest in antioxidant power since apparently alcohol aids in the absorption of many of these phenolic compounds. Didn't know that. And then finally, beer contains carbohydrate obviously. So for sake of comparison, we're going to look again at wine, wine, at least the, the few bits of data that I looked at ranges from 120 to about 200 calories per eight ounce pour beer. On the other hand, much bigger range, 55 calories on the low end. Don't do it up to 300 calories on the high end per drink. And that seems to be right in the ballpark of a 12 ounce serving. So we're not even talking 15 ounce pint you'll get in the bar, 19 ounce Imperial pint you'll get in a bar or the 22 ounce bombers you can buy in the store. So, and and admittedly, some of these calories do come from the alcohol and the higher the alcohol content, the higher the calories are going to be, but also grains, which are carbohydrate. So the question is, are these particular carbohydrates beneficial? Can they reload glycogen stores? Well, it is carbohydrate. It will become glucose. So there's at least a potential for increasing your glycogen stores in the muscle, in the liver. I don't know. Again, it's a shallow dive. I didn't look that deeply. Alcohol on the other hand, hard, no, it it won't, it it will metabolize. It will be used as energy, but it's never going to make its way to glycogen. And while the carbohydrate in beer at least stands a chance, fat conversion, fat storage are more likely fates. So my take is that beer has carbohydrate, carbohydrate can facilitate recovery. Sadly, beer is quite a ways from an optimal source of carbohydrate, especially post-workout. So all in all. In moderation, it's not the worst thing you could do post-workout, but it's certainly not the best. It's probably not even close.
0: I'm just surprised to hear you take a dig at wine. I wasn't expecting that. Oh, I whatsoever.
1: love wine. No, I'm not even trying to rip on wine. I love it. It's just anytime we talk about alcohol for health, it's always red wine, red wine, red wine. And it turns out right. beer may be as healthful and in certain cases more healthful.
0: Yeah. And especially in when talking about gut biomes, wasn't mm-hmm. expecting that. Yeah. Hannah, are you a fan of a recovery beer?
2: I feel like there's something to be said about when drinking beer in the context of quote unquote recovery, what you're doing when you're drinking that beer. Mm -hmm. I feel like at least for me, that's where I've seen the most, again, quote unquote benefits. Unlike Chad, I don't have science to back that up, but just the way that I feel when I For example, after a long ride, you sit down on the couch and you enjoy a beer or you have you go to a brewery and you have a beer with friends. It's like this moment where you just went so hard on the bike, you're all revved up and then you just kind of (sighs) you just take this deep breath and enjoy something. And I think there is something to be said for turning that part of your brain off, relaxing and indulging a little bit.
1: Yeah, I didn't even talk about the psychological side of things, and it's obviously important and real, but uh, I, there, there have been times where during a race, during a hard ride, during a hard workout, the promise of a beer, and it's not even the beer per se. I mean, I am looking forward to the beer, but just the idea that when I drink that beer, I'm going to be posted up at the bar or on my sofa or whatever, just relaxing. I've done the work. Now it's time for the reward, and and it, it gets me through.
0: Uh, Keegan, that – mental reward aspect of fear probably helped you on the spirit tour right <laughs> or did you know that that was going to happen
3: uh no i mean not really like myron you know you never really know with myron he just sometimes things just appear places he kind of knew where we were going we're like oh look, myron yeah. must have been here there's a tower of modello
0: yeah can you tell uh, us about the spirit tour a little bit
3: so yeah we uh yeah it was a trip we did in southern arizona started in tucson um Kind of made our way, made our way south to Arivaca, Bisbee, kind of cruised all around each day. They're pretty, pretty big days, like six to 10 hours. Um, some good, uh, like route finding. Um, yeah, but everything, but, uh, yeah, we stumbled across the little tower of Modelo's in the desert, drank those, and then we <laughs> raced up the next climb and actually felt really good. And I was like, huh, maybe there's something to, uh, a little <laughs> mid-ride Modelo. And then, <laughs> going hard i don't know <laughs> yeah um yeah i'm not really like not super into beer like i wouldn't say like i actually don't really ever have any at the house or i mean here i'll here and there i'll drink some but it's not a. i don't know it's not something i guess that i look forward to or uh like it uses a reward or whatever but
0: yeah not your normal i do, appreci- I do appreciate it here
3: and there yeah yeah
0: so, totally. Well, I'm glad yeah. to be validated that it's not going to hurt. We won't me judge you Keegan. in recovery. <laughs> yeah. And we won't judge yeah. you Keegan. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll stick
3: to my wine. know. Yeah.
0: Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, on a similar note, liquid calories are better than solid food when writing. This is an interesting hot take. Um, I kind of disagree with this one. Hannah, what do you think?
2: I mean, I think, at the end of the day, whatever you're willing to eat on the bike is what's going to be best for you. So that's always the place that I start with people. So if you're brand new, that's kind of like the first barrier to step over is eat something. I don't care what it is. And then when you're fine tuning, I think is when you really get into what's best. And I think for most people, when they're out training and things like that, they have this tendency to think, okay, you know, bars and things like that. That's what I'm willing to eat. That's what I enjoy. But then you get into a race type scenario and they find that, oh, actually I can't eat that. And then they don't. And that brings up again, what are you willing to eat? And so in those contexts, I do think the liquid calories are the best because it's what people can usually put down the fastest. Mm -hmm. Keegan, what are your thoughts?
3: Yeah. I mean, I I agree with Hannah. Like, eat whatever you want to eat, whatever is going to encourage you to eat on the bike. Um, but I think in the end, it's also for me, it's really intensity based. So like as the intensity goes up, I transition more from solids to liquids. Um, I do get most of my calories from liquids on almost any training ride, but then as it gets more intense, I'll just switch from food to gels and um, yeah. And then do that for, doesn't really matter how long it is. If it's unbound, I'll still just use gels and, liquid more or less. So, Sure. Um, yeah, pretty simple calories in are good.
0: Yeah. Chad, has that changed for you over time?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's Keegan, they both touched on it. It's intensity and duration dependent. I mean, it's dependent on a number of things. Yeah. If you're at a point where any food that gets in you will eventually be energy that you can use to keep on going. That's one thing, but just, just look at the duration side of things. If you're hopping on to do a 60 minute interval workout, you're not going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or, or even a bar. It's not going to get in there in time. So, but if you're out there for hours on end, the intensity is low, then you can get away with just about anything.
0: All right. Next hot take XEO is just a time trial for 90% plus people of racing it. Keegan, what do you think about this one?
3: Uh, I'd probably have to agree. I mean, <laughs> I think unless they're racing, like if they're racing locally, if you know, like their local, you know, regional series or whatever, it's likely a time trial for most people. Um, I'd also kind of argue it's probably the best way to race it for most people, like just do your own thing and not get caught up in whatever else is going on. Um, yeah, I don't know. That said, there definitely is a lot of racing where it's not a time trial. So I don't know. Maybe they just need to venture out and find bigger races if they don't want a time trial, but
0: yeah. Should that change yeah. your, um, strategy going into the race or how you train for it?
3: Um, I think it would change if, you know, it's going to be a time trial, then like if it's a small group, then I just, you know, focus on your own effort and kind of do your thing. And if you know, it's not, then maybe it still might be the best tactic for you, especially if it's like winter park where it's at altitude, like the best thing to do is ride within yourself and, you know, pay attention to your own efforts and not get caught up and going with an early move or, um, something like that. So yeah, I'd say it's course dependent altitude. And yeah.
0: Sure. What do you think, Hannah?
2: I think this hot take is a great opportunity to talk about strategy in general because I think that while the short of it is yes, I think that it really, there's two factors of why it wouldn't be. The first one being if drafting is a huge element in the race. So if it's a really flat course and you're gonna gain a lot from being in the group due to drafting, then you should, it shouldn't just be a time trial. You need to be in that group. And then the other scenario is if you're racing to win, it probably isn't a time trial unless you're off the front because you need to be in contention. And I do think that that is when your training can look a little bit different because if you're time trialing, you're likely setting one effort and your goal is to maintain that effort. No matter what the train is doing, you're shifting, your bike, in order to maintain the same speed, the same wattage, etc. But if you're in a group and you're trying to drop someone or not get dropped, it's going to be a lot of spikes and a lot of variety that you can't control, and you have to have your body and your energy systems and mentally be ready for those type of changes as well. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's that. totally valid. Yeah. Do you
0: think that um, that mental energy shift from like when you're are you ever surprised that you're in a time trial? race scenario and how do you like decide to stay to race within yourself? Like, you know, these are all things that we know we should do, but when it surprises you that you're suddenly in a time trial position, is it hard to overcome at times?
2: I think it depends of whether or not you want to be in that time trial. Like, I think if you're off the front and you're time trialing, I've never had a problem with that feels great to me. Um, But if you're in a time trial because you've got kicked out the back and now you're trying to motor up to the group, I think the emotion that comes from getting dropped can sometimes be something that does get in your way. And so I think in those scenarios, really what's best is if you can remove the emotion from the situation and just focus on the task at hand. Seems like something Chad would be good at. Removing the
0: emotion part and just – yeah. What do you think? Mm -hmm.
1: I I think 90% might be on the low side of the estimate because just about everyone out there has to at some point settle into a sustainable pace, which if you're really racing is going to be the highest pace you can sustain, which is by its nature a time trial. So the people who are mixing it up who aren't time trialing will eventually settle back into a time trial. So it might be just about everybody except for those brief flurries where you're trying to make something happen, but whether you're off the front or you are off the back, whether you're hanging on for dear life to a single track pace line, it's, it's basically a a time trial.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, Next hot take off season is boring. I totally agree with this one. I'm, I had a really bad time, (laughs) Chad, are you in your off season right now?
1: Yeah, I, off season can be boring. Um, honestly, it's probably best for bike racers if it is a little bit boring. Because my off season was really entertaining and engaging because I did a bunch of things up here at the house. And now I'm four months off the bike, and my fitness is oh, <laughs> deplorable. <man. laughs> it's so bad. I haven't I haven't lost this much fitness in probably multiple decades. This is the lowest I've been in in so long, and it's a it's actually. It's kind of good. It reminds me of uh, Amaret. My wife is a veterinarian. So we get a dog. She learns things that make her job more relatable or it's easier for her to relate to her her clients. And this is kind of one of those things where I'm back to actually dealing with the things I recommend doing for the reasons I recommend doing them. I tell people, touch up your fitness. Even if you're not going to – if you're going to have an extended off-season or layoff of some sort – just try to touch up every 7 to 10 days sort of thing. Get on the bike, do a short hard workout, remind your system of what it needs to retain, and then you, you cut yourself quite a lot of slack doing that. And now here I am again, 4 months off the bike saying I should have done something, just something every 2 weeks and 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 I'm I'm starting from scratch. But again, it's uh it's kind of a good place for me to revisit to remind myself how real it is to be detrained, detrained and how hard the fight back upwards from 30-minute workouts, every one of which are miserable in one way or another. It's uh I, I think it'll, I hope, make me more relatable as a coach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Because we've we've all been there. I don't know, maybe not Keegan and Hannah. Hannah, how long is your usual offseason and did you like it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of think of off season in two different sections. So there's like my off-season transition period, which is time I'm truly taking off the bike. And then there's the off-season where I'm training, but I'm just not racing. And so that off-season transition period is about two weeks. Um, And just like Chad said, hopefully it is boring. Usually I feel like inevitably everything I haven't done for the other 50 weeks out of the year is like, okay, I have two weeks. To do everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then those two weeks fly by, and I realize now I have 50 weeks back on the bike, um, which is wonderful and great. But it's just crazy how fast that time flies by. Oh, but then my off season, when I'm just not racing and training, I feel like is actually some of the hardest work I put in during the year. Maybe not the busiest because travel isn't often involved like it is during the race season, but it's definitely some of the longest hours um, and the time when I'm really digging in for training. So that's far from boring. Mm -hmm. I guess, yeah,
0: it totally depends upon what the purpose of your rest or off season is. So for Hmm. me getting super sick more than once and kind of Mm -hmm. forcing my hand on the off season early with didn't make it fun. And I didn't feel like I had a bunch of productive stuff to look forward to. I was just, sad oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah keegan have you ever had like a forced off season or do you enjoy your off seasons and what do you like do during that time or are you just itching to get back on the bike
3: yeah <laughs> i mean uh this off this past off season and i guess it would have been like november or whatever it was you know, it was rad we went to mexico it's so, like proper time off there no exercising nothing which okay. was good because normally i get like i get pretty antsy and i start running a bunch and like I'll go you know, grab my dirt bike and end up like almost more tired than I do in race season. So i I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go run for however long and we go do this all day dirt pro- bike ride. So you probably
0: still ran in Mexico though. Didn't you
3: at the end? Yeah. I started to get a little, a little antsy. Um, yeah, no, it's good. And I think that's also like mental off season too. Like even though it's not total recovery, I think it's mostly mental. Um, just get your mind out of training for a bit and out of like that routine. Um, And then, yeah, I kind of said, then there's kind of like off season where you're not racing, but you're still training really hard. And in my opinion, like that's when you win bike races is in the off season. Like you can't like January and February are really important months. Even December is pretty important for training. And if you kind of slack off, then you can't, you're just playing catch up the rest of the year and you're just never going to get there. Um, So, yeah, I think kind of just got to find the balance there, but uh. Yeah, definitely was happy to have my off season back this year because previous off season. I had a broken hand and some other issues and couldn't really do anything and it sucked. So, um, yeah. maybe it was good, but, uh, it's nice to have an off season where I can do the things I want to do. Cause you only get, like Hannah said, you only get like, you know, I get three weeks a year where I can go do whatever I want. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's good. good stuff. all right. Hot take writing for fun and racing will – raising your friends, sorry, will make you faster. Um, <laughs> Coach Chad, what do you think?
1: <laughs> it can. It absolutely can, but it can't be the only thing you do. So if that if that's all you do, it's, it's at some point it's – all you're going – all you'll be doing is flogging your friends, getting flogged by your friends, and at some point it's simply going to be too much. It's like doing hard intervals for every workout.
0: Yeah, and I think that riding for fun and – racing your friends on like unstructured rides that you can add outside of your training are important in Absolutely. some mental aspect for sure. Like riding, writing and, in- Training should be fun, and that's an important part of that. But I, don't, I agree that it's not the singular way to sure. – or doing that exclusively won't make you faster. Or won't and exposing
1: you faster. yourself to, to group rides and practicing racecraft and being pushed harder than you would otherwise push yourself. There are plenty of benefits, but again, all, all in, in, I guess, maybe moderation is the, t- the theme for the day.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keegan, do you race your friends? Do you race your friends? Yeah, every,
3: every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> on the shootout. Um, I think, yeah, once a week, you know, you get to throw all your, there's no structure. You just basically just go as hard as you can and try and drop all your friends and maybe you get dropped. And, um, I don't know. It's funny. You definitely can learn a lot to learn about, like, you know, instead of that interval being a little bit, you know, instead of it only a one minute interval, like that same power for a minute and a half or, mm. um, whatever it might be, and you can practice different tactics and I think, the shootout's a little bit special in the sense that it's like I think you actually get training benefit out of it because it's one of the few group rides I feel like you get a long block of intensity. I mean, the first bit's like 40 minutes and it's normally right about like threshold average power. So I think there's actual training benefit to that. Um, it's not like short little like six, seven minute, eight minute segments of racing.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: yeah, there's definitely benefit to doing some group rides as long as it's not the only thing you do.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hannah, do you incorporate any of any fun racing friends
2: in your training? I do. I think it's really helpful. I think, you know, from a structure standpoint, it's not the same as structured intervals. So it has to come with moderation, but I think it definitely makes you a more skilled rider, not only bike handling like riding in groups, but savvy wise. I know for me, just like Keegan saying, like, can I hold this power for a minute and a half? It's, Even I'm thinking, can I attack this far out? What if I attack a little further out? What if I wait a little bit longer? Or sometimes I'll go on group rides with a bunch of men that I know are stronger than me. So then I get to play the game. Well, how can I hide the best? How can I save my most matches? How can I stay in this group? And those just aren't things that I get to learn when I do intervals on my own. So I think that it can definitely make you a more skilled rider, which can manifest itself in better results. But you have to have that structured training on top of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Agreed. All right. this one You guys are going to absolutely roast the person that submitted this. <laughs> Try bikes in a group ride. It's okay to ride one if you don't sit in the aero bars.
3: Uh, I think it's okay if you're oh, one what? of the best triathletes in the world. Like, okay. like Sam <laughs> Long or Ben Hoffman <laughs> or a few of the other guys who train in Tucson. Um like they always do the shootout on their tri bikes and normally they don't get in the position unless we're like off the front and we're like, I'll, I'll, like there's a breakaway or something.
0: Oh, that'd be great um, to be on their wheel if you're in a break and they want to sit on the front and get in there. Yeah, air it's car. pretty sweet. They put it in like, <laughs> they're like
3: 56 and they just, they just roll. Um, but yeah, no, they know what they're doing. You know, like I got to trust them. Um, But every now and then you get someone who doesn't know what they're doing and it's, pretty sketchy so i think you know you need to make sure you're really really confident on the aero bike because they're obviously they're really bad at everything except for going straight so yeah Yeah. um
0: yeah yeah chad can you talk about from like a mechanical standpoint why it's a bad idea
1: (laughs) well first i'd just like to say that it's try bike on a group ride or a solo ride being an arrow is really limited in its context when you can get an arrow and safely be an arrow man i i would save that stuff almost entirely for the trainer and race day just because there's so many things that can go wrong and the control is so minimal when you're in your arrow bars like egan bernal
3: hitting the bus yeah yeah it was yeah egan
1: Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. And I think, I think uh, maybe Froome's accident wasn't on a TT bike, was it though? It might've been.
3: It might've been. There's a lot of them who have crashed on TT bikes.
1: Mm. Yeah. There's just, there's, there's no control. It doesn't matter how, how good you are. If it's not a controlled race environment where you can count on the roads being closed and marked and a lead vehicle that's given you somewhat of a heads up to w- what lies ahead. It's just a, it's not a great idea. Again, save that, save that for indoors and and race day or, you know, if you have especially safe courses where, you know, they're going to be minimal traffic, you're very familiar with it. You're going at uh, odd hours where, where traffic and other – it's not just traffic. I mean there's so many so many things. Um, from a me- mechanical perspective, uh, I understand that the desire for specificity, you want to be in that position, you want to train hard in that position. And something like a shootout where you're pushing high numbers, it's probably a good thing. That much of it resonates with me, but you know, again, everything I just said—it's it's not a great idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Henny, what do you? Think? I would also,
2: well, I would also challenge you that if you own another bike, like mm-hmm. a different road bike, why are you bringing your tri bike to the group ride at all? That—that's where I think, like you said, we might poke fun at this one a little bit that's where i'm just giving you a little bit of a shoulder shrug of why are you bringing that bike to a group ride it's just not it's not the optimal machine so why would you have it i think
3: in some cases it's like specificity like i know like sam and ben will do the shootout which is you know 40 45 minutes or whatever and then they'll go ride another six or seven hours Mm -hmm. afterward in aero position like rotating or whatever so i think Like, I kind of get it in some instances, but I think you have to really know what you're doing in order to do it. Otherwise, you should be prepared to be yelled at by whoever else is on the group ride and probably be shamed and not come back. So,
0: and I guess, (laughs) I guess athletes like Ben, like those skills that we talk about that we learn in group settings, you know, they're and they're not going to really need to practice those, aren't skills that they're really going to need to fine tune in a mass race setting, you know, so. But we can agree that they're anomalies and we should not compare ourselves yeah. to them, nor should other mm-hmm. people going on local group rides. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, like, oh, they did it. It's safe. It's like, well, that's yeah. their job. So they're really yeah. good at it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> totally. All right. Uh, handlebar bags on oh. 10K Aero bikes is LOL. Um, I <laughs> get where this person was coming from, um, but I disagree with this hot take um, because just if you have really nice equipment doesn't mean you need to carry a lot of snacks for a long day. Um Keegan, you definitely have bar bags or bags on your really nice equipment, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I do feel bad when I put a bar bag in the front of my Cervélo S5 like it's a really <laughs> fast aero bike. <laughs> so, I have started running a the a frame pack that goes like a mini frame pack that goes like in the triangle and oh, that's nice is pretty sweet. Cause then you can also run that and a bar bag for when you're really loading up stuff. But yeah, I do try to run that on the survello just cause like you do feel the bar bag. Like you're like, I'm riding this bike to go fast. And I just put like a, <laughs> little, a wall in front of it. So, but if you're riding by yourself or if you want to try and slow your bike down for whatever reason, if, mm-hmm. then you can put a bar bag on it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't really care what you do. It's your bike.
0: Yeah. Hannah, so, do you
2: use bar bags to carry snacks and stuff? totally i think it all depends on the mindset behind this maneuver so if you if your road bike is an aero bike and you're putting a handlebar bag on it because you need room to carry snacks fantastic um but if you're picking between multiple bikes and you pick the aero bike because it's super aero and really fast and then you put the handlebar bag on it yeah then it is kind of lol yeah
0: valid What do you
1: think, Chad? Yeah, these two covered everything, I would have said. I I will add, I'm very fond of my bar bag because it was a gift from our our very own or our past own Pete Morris and and from he and his wife, from him and his wife, Emily, who, by the way, just had their brand new baby boy. So congrats to both of them. Congrats, Pete and Emily. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. But same deal. I mean, I'm not going to go out and try to ride as fast as I can with a big old I mean, it's a, it's a full on, looks like a mini keg almost on the front of my bike. But, uh, if I'm out there for a long day, if I need a lot of food and I don't feel like packing it on my body, it's a wonderful tool. Awesome.
2: I especially like it in the winter too, because I can carry more layers Mm. without being stressed about which pocket everything is eventually going to fit in if I have mm-hmm. to take it all off.
3: And your layers don't get sweaty. Like if you put your buff or your gloves yeah. in your pocket, they get sweaty yeah. and they get cold. You need to put your sweaty gloves back on the bar bag. to stay <laughs> nice and cold and like yeah. dry. So
0: There's definitely something to be said for not having to put all yeah. that stuff on your back and on your body. Oh, it sucks.
3: You end up being like, you know, you're shoving it down your neck and your Jersey, you're shoving um, it up underneath. Like yeah.
2: The sweat is a real problem. I used to before, before I was familiar with bar bags, I don't know when their popularity spiked. I used to, in the winter, tape my gloves to my top tube. Because in Salt Lake, you, like, ride up the canyon and then ride down. So I'd tape them for the ride up and then take them off, put them on, and ride down. <laughs> now bar bags have eliminated the tape.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was huge for me. I'd always have to need a pair of warm gloves. And if they're on my back and in my pockets, they would just be, like, soaking wet by the time I needed them. And then, you know... Any gain would be lost. Yeah. All right. Works, but nothing. Glad we agree. We love bar bags, even on <laughs> aero bikes sometimes. <laughs> All right. Hot take recovery rides hinder recovery. This is interesting and interesting for me in my role at Trainer Road to look at athletes who do recovery rides and see what they really are. And when you can't stay in the zone, you're absolutely hindering your recovery. Uh, Hannah, what do you think?
2: Yeah, this one, I, it made me laugh a little bit because I think we've all fallen into this trap of as type A athletes, we're so used to overcoming. We overcome whatever it takes to get our workout done and we'll do the same thing for recovery ride and we'll forget what the point of the recovery ride is. So if you're going for a recovery ride in rain and freezing temperatures and scorching heat. If you're waking up at 5 a.m. before work to get it in or stressing that you're not going to be able to get it in, it probably is hindering your recovery and you're losing sight of the point. But if you're actually just going for an easy spin and it nicely fits in the schedule that you already have that time allotted for it, and you're just hopping on the stationary bike or going for a nice spin around the neighborhood it does facilitate recovery, but you have to keep in mind what the goal is and not push to get that recovery ride in. Like we sometimes push to get our workouts in. Mm-hmm.
0: Keegan, do you ever have a hard time? Like you're probably pretty diligent about staying in the recovery zone.
3: Yeah. I mean, I have to agree with Hannah. Like, I think I've gotten better about like, Oh, it's just not worth the effort or the stress of making this recovery ride happen. Like after a long trip, like you're you know, if you're flying across this, the country and you're like, Oh, you get there and you have like barely enough time. You're rushing to build your bike. Like, you know what? I'm just going to take today off. Like there's no point in stressing. Um, and then from a recovery standpoint, I think I've learned, especially after like 24 hours, you know, play last year and some of the other big things I've done, there is something to be said about like actual off days versus recovery days, even though it might only be 10 TSS. There's like, I feel like there's something to be said for like your body knows Like you put on a kit and your body's like, all right, we're trained today. We're going to do, we're doing something. Whereas if you like, don't put a kid on, you don't get on the bike. Like it just stays like mega chill. So I think sometimes you need to know, like, you know, I, I just need a full off day today. And then think you need to know when to draw that line. And, um, yeah, when they, they both have their place for sure. But mm-hmm.
0: yeah. yeah, Chad, do you have any tips yeah. for when to like, see when you should just not do a recovery <clears throat> ride and just actually recover?
1: Yeah. I mean, those were such good observations, uh, I think it's too easy to conflate endurance work with recovery work. I think <clears throat> people think if I'm working at the low end of the endurance range, there's only 60% of what I can do. This should feel like recovery. Well, does it feel like recovery? Honestly, answer that question because if it doesn't feel like recovery, it's probably not recovery. And if it starts, feeling like reco- it starts out feeling like recovery but partway through it or in too long of a recovery ride, which is often the case with so many people... Then it's not a recovery ride anymore. I mean, it should just feel like recovery. At that point. It, it, it totally is. It's a yeah. total waste of time. You're not gaining anything from it. You're probably handicapping your your recovery processes. What's going to come next in terms of uh, whatever the next workout is. So, yeah, it, it's absolutely a waste of time. And I think in more cases than not, Keegan's call is the right call. If it if it seems like getting on the bike is just more of a burden on that day, then just don't get on the bike.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Next hot take. It's okay to change your plan volume mid season. Um, this one's interesting and something that we facilitate in train road with your training plans, um, to be able to edit your volume while you're training. But, um, Keegan, have you ever had a, a, like a time in training where like the amount of volume you were doing were just, was just like not working and you needed to reassess and change it and why, and how did you get there?
3: Um, I don't that's I don't know. It's a hard question. I guess I normally just do what I'm told. So I don't really know like it changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like sometimes like my coach hasn't put training in yet. And I'm not sure like, you know, if he hasn't done it or if he's waiting to see how I feel after this block or like so I don't always yeah. know what the plan is. Um
1: sure.
3: that said, I think sometimes I mean, it's okay to pivot if you're like, all right, well, those race seasons change a little bit. We're doing this race, like a longer race instead. So we need to add more volume or maybe your fatigues so you need to take some volume away. Um I've definitely swapped out like intensity for volume sometimes I feel like long endurance rides for me, I can almost like recover in a sense. If I have a six hour endurance day, like for me, I can recover better from that than I can from like a two hour day with VO two. So I think it's also a little bit dependent on the individual and like what you have time for and what's going to make you feel better. I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. not a, maybe not the best answer to that question, but no, that's all (laughs) right. I mean, there's no,
0: yeah.
2: Hannah, what do you think? I think there was a time in my life where this question was really applicable. And it was when I was in school. So starting out the season, maybe in March, I'd still be in classes. And so I did have a finite amount of time in which I could train. And then when I'd get out of school in May, I would suddenly have, it would be summer break. So I'd suddenly have so much more available time, mental energy, Um it I just, I had the ability to train more because my world had opened up. And so in May and June, I would really start ramping the volume and would hit my stride for those July races. So I can see a situation in which someone might change their volume mid-season if their life circumstances are changing as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chad, what do you think?
1: Uh, I <clears throat> I understand Keegan's hesitation or difficulty answering the question because from a coach writer's perspective, you just trust what your coach gives you. But, but from Hannah's side of things who sounds more like you coach yourself or at least you did coach yourself then and you get to make that call, it, there are pitfalls for sure. Just because you have more time doesn't mean your body can benefit from more training or handle it. So it's absolutely okay to change volume if you recognize what I'm doing right now. Either my fitness has plateaued, or I know I can handle more, or some other life stressor has come off, so I feel like I can handle a you know bit of additional stress on the bike. Then all these things are sensible and make make perfect sense to me. But. I mean, if you just recognize that the the training stimulus is insufficient, well, what's, what's logical, but to increase that stimulus in some way. And if that means increasing your plan volume, adding another day, adding, you know, bumping up to from low to mid, mid to high, that it's makes perfect sense.
0: Mm-hmm. It does.
2: And it, I think it is important to like, I, I did have a coach back then. And so it would always be something we plan and talk mm. about. It can't just be something that you suddenly throw at yourself and see if it works because exactly like you're saying it can lead to overtraining or just inefficiency really like you don't need to be out there just to be out there right and I feel
0: like a lot of athletes experienced this um in early pandemic when their work life situation changed and all of a sudden they had all this bandwidth to train and so they would just go you know very suddenly added a whole bunch of volume to their training and then absolutely fall apart and wonder why. So that's important to acknowledge that just because you have suddenly a bunch of bandwidth to train, doesn't mean that's necessarily the right move.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's a conversation that I have with my coach now more than anything is like, I feel good. Can I do more? I feel good. Can I do more? And it's like a lot of the time your coach is the one actually putting on the brakes saying like, no, there's a plan in place. (laughs) Yep. Totally. Which is probably what people experience with the trainer road plan too, when they're wanting to up the volume is they're thinking, oh my gosh, I want to do more. Can I do more? Can I do more? But if they just stick with what they're doing and find that consistency within the plan, they'll be the most successful.
1: That's a, Absolutely. that's a really good point because that's the temptation, right? I'm handling this. I feel fine at the end of the week. I'm getting a little bit faster. So if I do more, I can probably get even faster. And that's, that's one of the pitfalls that I was just talking about. Cause it's a logical conclusion for sure. But when you reach that tipping point, the, the, uh, the dangerous aspect of it is you're not going to recognize it as a tipping point until you're well past it until the damage is done. Mm-hmm. And now you have to walk it back.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super valid. It's really hard to see that coming. Good stuff. All right, team tactics in gravel racing is acceptable. Yeah, I don't know if this is a hot take so much as just a truth. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's racing. Yeah, what do you think, Keegan?
3: I think you can do whatever you want. I don't like it's yeah. a bike race. If you want to race as a team? Race as a team. If you don't, don't do it. I don't know. I don't care what you do. <laughs>
0: yeah, if, if gravel racing was you were weird about that to, stuff, I think. Yeah, if it was intended to be a truly individual effort it would be like a waved time trial, you know?
3: Yeah. I think it makes it more fun. I mean, I think it's going to add more dynamics to races and, um, you know, bring more to it. So, yeah. yeah Hannah, cool. is
0: it, it's fun to like form little alliances with your group that you like end up with right. Team tactics. Yeah. I,
2: <laughs> yeah. I think it's really fun. I think where it can become really interesting for women is when the men start mixing in and you start having male-female alliances, um, but still, if it's not a rule, it's acceptable. Uh, so mm-hmm. the word "acceptable" here is what's. I mean, if it's not a rule, you have to yeah. you have to fly with what you're given, and so you have to be able to take advantage of any and all circumstances. Mm-hmm. Can I, I
1: can I just, instead of answering it, throw a different hot take at all three of you? Yes. Is, uh, t- team tactics in cyclocross is impossible.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Truly impossible. <laughs> yep.
1: Because I hear it all the time. I mean, you, you watch the World Cup races and you see top riders on the same teams and the commentators so often talk about how they're working together and, oh, someone did something for someone else. And I, I always have to call BS every time because there's just they're all opportunists. They're all out there for themselves. They may be a cohesive team in practice, but when it comes race day, they're only about themselves.
3: Yeah. I do think if it's a fast course, there could be some team tactics, you know, like I think there could be a little drafting or maybe like Mm. they're going to help set someone up for the last lap. If there's like, like an overall, like world cup overall or something like, Oh, sure. Sure. I'd say like in general, I'd say you're right. But I do think there's probably some small team tactics that we might not catch on to. Maybe someone will lead into the, the barriers and slow it down for their teammate. Who's off the back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like there's probably some subtle stuff that we might not quite catch on to is like just from watching. Cause there's, you know, you can do the same kind of stuff in XCO, even though there's not really tactics, there's definitely subtle, small things I think that go on that like your average that you might not see on television.
0: Yeah. But, there. I do remember seeing an instance of that, um, In the last couple years of a, some sort of overall situation where two team riders were like waiting for or trying to protect someone racing for the overall and that person was like falling apart and seeing these other two riders like kind of trying to wait for him was visibly uncomfortable. Like (laughs) they did not know how to wait or what to do. And it was (laughs) pretty funny. So yes, Chad, I agree with you. Next one, training in the morning is terrible and sleep is more important. And then another couple hot takes that related to this, maintenance training is okay when you're sick or have COVID, and most bike racers are horribly irresponsible when returning from COVID or illness. Um, So the theme here is, when is it okay to prioritize training when you're um, thinking about sacrificing sleep or recovering from illness? Um, When are you negating the benefit? What do you think, Hannah? Hannah?
2: Oh, man, this is a brutal question, because it is so individual. And the reality of being sick or tired is no one can feel that except for you. And so a lot of the time when people ask, you know, "Oh, I'm sick, should I still be training? I don't know how sick I don't know what it feels like. So it's really challenging. Um, I think when it comes to the sleep, like, I think the blanket statement of sleep is more important. is a little bit challenging because if you're getting eight hours of sleep, you probably don't need 10 hours of sleep. Um, if you're getting three hours of sleep, yeah, you probably need a little bit more. I've heard of people waking up at one in the morning to get in their training. Yeah, probably not effective. Um, for me, I think kind of the with sleep, the rule of thumb I put in is if this is a standard um, uh, routine for you. So, if you're going to be waking up at 5 a.m. every day, this isn't just a one-off. You need to be able to recover in time for your next workout. Um, so, if you feel like every day you're waking up at 5 a.m. and every day you're getting more tired, you probably need to change something in your life in terms of going to sleep earlier or yes, sleeping in later to find more sleep. But if you're have a great routine and that's just the time you wake up and that's just the time you do your training and you're recovering one day, the next, I think it's working well for you. Mm -hmm. What
0: do you think, Chad?
1: Uh, I would just look at this or I will, uh, as a aging athlete, look at this from the perspective of how this changes as you age, because uh, I used to be able to train in the morning. No problem. It used to be very productive training. Uh, that was my, my consistency was crazy high and my whole day was ahead of me. I got the training done and that was just a question of managing nutrition and recovery, things that I didn't exactly get right. But at least that's all I had to worry about. And, and, and then I could get by on less sleep. And not to say that that's excusable, but I could. Seven hours of sleep was solid. That, that was fantastic. These days, I would absolutely take the eighth hour of sleep over a workout that I had to postpone toward the end of the day because I just – need more recovery. I don't recover the way I used to. I don't adapt to small to medium training loads, certainly not high ones the way I used to. So I think sleep is uh, far more, the the more important factor. I mean, obviously the training's important, but without adequate sleep, without adequate recovery, all the things that go with it, a lot of that training is, is going to be to some extent wasted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Keegan, have you had times where like your sleep has been so inadequate or when you're recovering from illness when you know it's just time to not train?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, Hannah kind of nailed the sleep on, like if you need to wake up early to train, then just go to bed earlier, I guess. And if you're not getting enough sleep, then you're gonna have to change something because it's not really sustainable. Um, and yeah, if you're sick, I mean, it's, Probably no matter how sick you are, it's probably a good idea to not do intervals, but maybe if you're just mildly sick, you're okay to do like an easy endurance ride or, um, a recovery ride or whatever. Sometimes I think that like, it's as long as it's not super cold out and it's not going to make you more stressed. Like, you know, if you're pretty sick, like going out for a very easy bike ride is sometimes a good thing. I think to help like clear yourself out, get some sunshine, like some light. I think like sitting inside all day is never a good thing. Um, but that's you know that's just me I'm not a doctor do whatever you want like <laughs> I, I'm not gonna stop you from sitting inside all day if you're sick um yeah. so but I do think it's it's a good thing to get out and exercise a little or just go for a walk you know like get out and do something mm-hmm. sometimes it makes you feel a lot better even if you're real sick so
1: cents go ahead Hannah.
2: oh I was just gonna say I think if you're sick and you're ever experiencing frustration over not hitting your numbers or not feeling a certain way during your ride you shouldn't be doing that workout mm, so yeah. just like Keegan's saying if you're a little bit sick and you get on and you just spin out nice and easy i think depending on how sick you are that there is sometimes a, a time and a place for that but if you're trying to do an aerobic ride or even intervals when you're sick and you're feeling frustration that oh my gosh my rpe is too high for the wattage i'm putting out and blah 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 you're going about it all wrong and you need to completely reset your mindset and your goal for that ride.
3: It's going to take you longer to
1: get better at that point. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chad, did you have something more to
0: add?
1: Just on on the heels of what Keegan said, I do think that it's, I just lost my train of thought completely.
0: That's all right. If, if it's going to tax you more, don't do it.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, no. Okay, so if we could just edit this, Maxine, scrap that. Um, On the heels of what what Keegan said, I think there's a lot of truth to the cliche that movement is medicine. So the idea of I need to recover, I need to lay here and recover, yeah, to an extent that may be necessary if the illness is severe, if it's dragged out. I mean you should be able to recognize when it's appropriate to get up and move and when it's appropriate to to lay and convalesce. So when it comes time to to make that jump from one to the other – Easy movement. Some movement is absolutely has its place.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's great advice. All right, we're gonna move on to a couple listener questions out of hot takes. Patrick asks, Coaches, I hope you can help me with my situation. I'm a mountain biker who has recently jumped into cycle cross after becoming so frustrated with my inability to descend in technical XC races. I seem to be able to manage descending technical terrain just fine when I was riding alone. But when I got in a group of riders, I just can't seem to ride the right lines. So I lose momentum, positions, and sometimes crash. I got so frustrated that this season I've decided to try something new and drop mountain biking for a while. But now I'm finding uh but I'm finding I'm still encouraged in the same encountering the same issue in Cyclocross on mildly technical terrain. What can I do to fix this? Why can others descend in a group but I can't? This is really interesting and it makes me wonder if um you know, Patrick feels like they can ride the right lines when they're alone, but not in a group. Maybe they're not riding the right lines. What do you think, Hannah?
2: Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts on this one. So please, anyone jump in at any point. But um, the first thing is, I think you need to pre-ride the course, know your own lines, and then stick to those lines. So if you are confident in your line, and you feel really good riding it alone, and then you get in a group, you should still be riding that same line. You don't have to follow the line of the person in front of you. And depending on what category you're in and who you're riding behind, they may or may not be picking the correct line. So sticking with what you know is probably going to be the safest scenario in that point. I know there's plenty of times when someone might take a sketchier line, it might be faster in front of you. But if you haven't practiced that line, it's not the line... For you on that day, you need to stick to the one you know and you're comfortable with. Next is when you're on that person's wheel, you should be looking ahead of them. You shouldn't just be staring at their back wheel or their back pockets. You should still be looking, ideally, the same place you would down the trail as if you were riding on your own. So you're going to be darting your eyes back and forth, gauging what you're riding, the person in front of you, and quite a ways in front of you to see what's coming up. Next, uh, Patrick mentions riding in a group. So I assume that they're talking not just about one person, but multiple people. And sometimes on the mountain bike, especially if this is something that they're struggling with, it can be super nerve wracking, actually not the person ahead of them, but the person behind them. It can feel so overwhelming to have someone behind you. And you just have to put the person behind you completely out of your head. Don't worry about how close they are. Don't worry about what lines they're taking. Don't even worry about it if they're hollering at you. Uh, You just need to focus on what you're doing and keep yourself safe. And that ultimately, if it makes you feel better, that's what's going to make you ride faster for that person behind you is if you don't stress about that person behind you. So it's actually a win-win for everyone involved. Um, And then some things that you can do outside of that scenario to get better at it would be practice this exact thing. um, And ideally practice it with someone that you trust so that you can separate this skill from fear or mistrust. So if I'm riding in a race with someone that I don't know, I will probably back off a little bit more than usual because I don't know what lines they're going to take. I am nervous that they might suddenly slam on the brakes and like that. But if I'm riding with a fellow competitor, a friend, a skills coach, I should be able to get as close to that person's wheel as I want because I'm confident that they're leading me in the right place. And so that's a time where I can really practice following someone and working on that confidence, because there's really no reason that I should be backing off. And then finally, um, and my last sort of tip here is maybe a little bit of a hard one, but time yourself riding alone on some of these descents. And then look at the times from the group or the people you're trying to follow. Because especially with sending all the time, we think we're going really fast. we think we're taking great lines, only to discover that when we're in the group, we're actually asking a lot more of ourselves. And they're actually moving a lot faster than we were when we're on our own. That speed is sort of distorted when you're on your own or with a group. So taking some time to time yourself and decide whether or not you're actually going fast enough and actually taking the best lines might be the hard truth that you need to face. And then if you discover you're not going fast enough, that's totally fine. That just means it's another space for you to improve. And that means you can improve on your own before entering back into that group scenario.
0: Mm -hmm. And I feel like doing that, that's a great piece of advice because doing that I think would help Patrick build more confidence so that when they go back into a group writing scenario, some of that fear and insecurity is kind of reduced because of what they've done on, in their work on their own right <clears throat> absolutely what do you yeah, what would you add, advise for oh go ahead chad
1: if i can add to what what both you guys said regarding trust i mean you can build your skills, your confidence riding with someone you trust, but at some point you have to offer that trust blindly. You're going to have to give it to people that you really don't have a reason to trust because that's the scenario. The person in front of you, you just have to accept they don't want to crash. They're going to pick the best line. I'm going to trust that that I'm on a safe wheel and you have to go with it. So eventually you're, you're going to have to cut loose of maybe just cut loose of the idea of trust and just hope for the best.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think, Keegan, what would you advise for Patrick?
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean Hannah kind of nailed most of those points there. I think that uh, I mean, first of all, you should to work on your descending on your own and like make sure you're confident and also like you know you can use Strava and be like, oh like I actually am off the pace. like it's not just a group thing. I'm just not as fast and you just need to figure out why and maybe take a you know you can do a skills class, you know I know those can help a lot to so, be someone who can actually help explain to you like what you're doing wrong and what you need to improve on. Um, and yeah, when you're racing in a bunch too, like there's definitely riders, like when you race enough, you get to learn like who you're happy to follow behind really closely. You know, for example, like I'll follow behind Russell pretty much blindly. I'll sit right on his wheel, like to the point where the dust isn't even coming off the ground. And just like, I know that he's not going to lead me into something bad. And then there's riders that like, I'd rather back off enough and like have space to break because I don't trust them. And I, I'd, I'd rather, you know, do my own thing. Um, because even though you know what you're doing, sometimes if you're following someone who's taking poor line choices, you end up just taking those anyway, because you end up focusing on what they're doing rather than what you're doing. So maybe you just need to focus more on yourself and, you know, kind of says, well, look through them, look ahead on the trail, try not to stare just at their rear wheel. And if you're in a bunch like descending down like a gravel road or this it just applies to gravel races, mountain bike races, whatever, I think something that really helps is to like not look down but look ahead and watch the riders in front of you watch their helmets bounce so like if you see everyone's helmets move up quickly that probably means there's like a water bar or like something in the road that you can't see because it's dusty so i think there's like tips and tricks you can kind of learn just by doing it like even though you're riding blindly you can kind of see what you kind of know learn to know what's going on with the terrain just based off what other people's bodies and heads are doing um and yeah at a certain point like when you're racing you have to Kind of just like sound, sounds a little bit bad, but you kind of have to disregard your well being at a certain point and just let it go. If you want to, if you want to win the race, you have to do what it's going to take. Hopefully you're confident enough that you believe in yourself and you can do that, but sometimes you have to go faster than you're willing to go. If you want to stay with the group. And that's just the way, that's just the reality of racing. You know, it's uphill and downhill. You have to go harder than you want to sometimes. And sometimes you have to go faster than you want to.
0: <laughs> totally. That's something <laughs> so. I, this this question makes me think of why and and our discussion makes me think of why I like off-road racing so much, is like all of these skills are things that you can keep building upon and learning. Um, even as an experienced racer, like we still learn and refine this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. Patrick, you're you're not alone in in needing to figure this stuff out. Um and you're doing great. Keep keep working on it. Yeah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. John's question. Um, Longtime listener, train road user, forum member, all of it. Thanks, John. I'm a 56 year old fanboy. Everything you all do is great. Thank you. (laughs) Um, If you haven't subscribed to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast or given us a thumbs up or a five star rating, make sure you do it now. Thank you. All right. John says, I'm wondering if there is any science or anecdotal data on optimizing rest stop or aid station break lengths on a long gravel event assuming one is trying to lower their overall lapse time. I have a 130-mile or and 10,000-foot climbing ride slash race coming up, unpaved. It has five rest stops. Obviously, at each one, I want to refuel and relieve as necessary, but I also want to rest and recharge. After about how long does the recovery battle become a literal waste of time? Any help is greatly appreciated. So I totally know what John is talking about, or it's a kind of break or rest he's referring to where you see writers at aid stations, um, really like take the time and chill out and like settle in and, um, even like sit down sometimes. And, you know, I think John is asking at what point does the rest become too much that it's damaging your recovery or you're getting too big and too big into this, like checking out of your mindset of racing, you know, like what do you, Hannah, what do you think this, Rider is experiencing, and what's his best call?
2: Uh, I mean, I understand where this rider is coming from because, just like you said, I think especially in some of these gravel races, the aid stations are like they're a little oasis, and so and they're it's super so fun. tempting. Sometimes yeah. I'll come racing by them and I'll kind of take a glance. I like, "Man, that looks like fun! I want to check that out." Um, so I understand the temptation. I also understand the temptation of wanting to recover, but I think at the end of the day, there's nothing you're going to do in a couple minute recovery stop. That's going to change how you feel for the rest of the race. And so when you're talking about, they say their goal is an overall lowering overall lapse time. I think any time at that aid station where you're not doing something unfortunately, is a little bit of wasted time. So uh, relieving yourself, filling up bottles, getting food, maybe putting on some chain lube, all of those things can be done slowly and methodically where you're lowering your heart rate. But after that, I think it's time to get back on the bike and start moving. And that is one really wonderful thing about cycling is you can, uh, assuming that the road is flat, you can move forward just with a couple of pedal strokes and coasting. So if you feel exhausted at any point during the race, I personally think it's better to take that recovery while still mo- making some sort of forward progress than sitting on the ground and just feeling that dread of, I'm not getting any closer to the finish while doing this. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Keegan?
0: Are you yeah, t- ever tempted think, uh, to just take a nap, take a break, take a nap.
3: (laughs) I mean, you know how I feel about feed zones. We know how you feel. I don't (laughs) like to use them. So I think, um, yeah, I would go into this with like a plan of like figure out what you want to do at the aid stations. Like I would, you know, normally they have a list of what they have at the aid stations. You make, oh, I'm going to want two gels. I'm going to want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich a bag of chips and I need to fill my bottles, for example, and just do those things and get out. Don't get caught up in like, standing around chit chatting. Cause the sooner you're done with this race, the sooner you can go and drink your beer on your tailgate of your truck, you know, like there's no reason to be out there longer than you have to. Um, mm-hmm. and I think too, like, uh, oh, man, I had, Oh yeah. So back to, you know, with old Pueblo, I had a rule that like, I was never going to sit down because if you came into the pit and you sat down, like everything's just going to take longer. You want to come in,
2: mm-hmm. stay
3: standing up, like walk around for a second. If you have to, while someone was living my chain or whatever, I think that like, that that you just your mindset changes when you sit and you're like oh i'm just gonna sit for a few more minutes and the next thing you know it's been 10 minutes and then 15 minutes and then all of a sudden you miss the cutoff for the race so i think that like just come in with a plan of what you want and what you need and get out of there and like hannah said you can you can roll easy for a bit and snack on your chips or whatever you have and just like you know soft pedal for a few minutes but then at least you're moving forward and you're not going to get distracted by someone coming in and even if there's like a line at, you know, one of the stations or whatever, you can just, you know, maybe you go to the other side and maybe you don't get your flavor of gel, but you just get something else and you can keep going and it's fine. Um, you know, there'll be another one. There's more aid stations. So yeah. you also maybe you don't have to stop at every single one. Maybe you can have a plan of mm-hmm. like, Oh, I'm going to stop at aid station one and three. I'm going to skip number two. Cause all I have to do is carry a pack and then I have enough, uh, I can carry enough stuff to skip that aid station. And that's a free, maybe that's a free 10 minutes of time for you. So.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah. Keegan,
0: that point is super relevant, and that's something that John is really good at, planning aid station stops, Um, Mm -hmm. and you need to look at, just because there are five stops and 10,000 feet of climbing doesn't mean that all those aid stations necessarily make sense. Like, one of them might be before, like, a pretty significant descent and might be geared more to be one of the party stops where people are going to actually sit down and relax, and that might not be beneficial for you if you're trying to... If you have like an overall time in mind. So that's a really valid point that you should be planning your intention for each one of these
2: stops. And there's
3: probably like, normally there's enough stops on, on these gravel rides and races that you don't necessarily have to hit every stop. It's almost engineered to where like you can hit every other stop. So there's not going to be bottlenecks to every single one. Like sometimes there's eight stations every like, you know, 20 miles and you can go further than that. If you carry a pack and some bottles. Um And if, you know, if you're going into a climb, there's no reason to fill all your liquid up and carry an extra 10 pounds up this climb. And you can just as well fill up at the top and go in, you know, so I think you can just look at the course a little bit and find the best plan.
2: I also think it's tempting to think, okay, if I just sit down and rest for five minutes, I'll recover and then ultimately I'll be able to pedal five minutes faster. And that is not the case. Um, so don't fall into that temptation. That rest feels so good and so wonderful, but especially at the intensity that you're moving for a 130 mile race, you're not going to suddenly be recovered to the point that you're going to be able to, to ride five minutes faster to make up that recovery that you got.
3: Five minutes is a lot of time. You're not going to make that up. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What do you think,
0: Chad? Got anything? Yeah.
1: Well, well, given my experience is greatly limited by comparison here, but I have dabbled in each of you know the super long rides, the shorter rides. I've tried to take a more casual approach to some of them, you know, f- fooling myself into believing that I, I can just have fun the whole time and I'll really enjoy the aid stations. But I came to recognize that there is a sweet spot uh, on the other side of which you – start to disconnect. And that disconnect is not beneficial. And like the idea of sitting down for five minutes, I promise you, that's not as beneficial as you hope. The idea of, you know what, I'm going to have a beer at one of these aid stations. That's just going to help me disconnect from the the stress of how hard I was working, the stress of what's ahead. Uh, Maybe all of this goes to definitely plan, which aid stations and what you're going to do with those aid stations. And that plan has to be kind of specific because again, I, I had planned to just be casual and, and just enjoy the aid stations. That's not specific enough. I need to know I'm going to get in, I'm going to get these few things, I'm going to limit it to this much time and I'm not going to allow these sinks. I mean, just have, be, be a bit more finite with it. Otherwise you run the risk of falling into the trap that I fell into, which was uh, just, it kind of sabotaged the quality of the ride
2: mm mm-hmm.
0: that's super valid yeah your plan can change right um or not be specific enough and yeah that's really sound advice okay andy says hello everyone i was one of the lo- and this is an older question um but still very relevant for those racing unbound this year Andy says hello everyone i was one of the lucky lottery entries for the unbound 100 race coming up in june i've ridden several centuries in the past but this is my first gravel century I've used plan Builder to create a training plan that includes three races leading up to Unbound. The first is a 70-mile gravel race four weeks out, and the second is a 40-mile road race three weeks out, and the third is a six-hour mountain bike race two weeks out. Is this too much load leading up to Unbound? I also want to compliment your team on adaptive training. It has been great for keeping workouts challenging and productive, yet not so challenging that I burn out and want to quit. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Um, All right. So what do we think? Is this too much training leading up to Unbound? I think for Hannah and Keegan, probably not. But for
2: (laughs) me and Chad, probably.
0: (laughs) What do you think, Hannah?
2: I think that without knowing more about Andy, my initial thought is I think that the 70 mile and the 40 mile can have a good place in there. I think the 70 mile is going to build some confidence. I think the 40 mile could be a good training experience. And then I think the six hour mountain bike race two weeks out from unbound is too much. I think it differs a little too much from the type of racing you're going to be doing at unbound. And I think it's the third, it would be at that point, the third week of racing in a row and only two, two weeks out from the race. So it's just too much to add in, not only with training, but with planning, you might have to travel a little bit to all these races, you're fixing gear and all these things that are just taking away from your ability to prep and prepare your best you can for unbound. So I think in general, when you're looking for races to prep for an A event, you're looking for races that either add experience or add confidence. Um, and if it doesn't do either, or if it's repetitive in one of those natures, then I think it's unnecessary. And I think you gain that in the 70 mile race and the 40 mile race. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's valid.
2: What do you think, Chad? What should this athlete do?
1: Oh, and I wish I had something to add to that. She covered everything I wanted to say and, and more, uh, did <laughs> the, the, the idea of a six hour mountain bike race, something that is both very long and not very specific and only two weeks out. I, I, I think maybe Andy has it in their head that two weeks is enough time to recover from just about anything. I promise you it's not. And and you're saying you're coming from a background of having done several centuries. That's all good and fine. But that uh, it, it doesn't paint the picture that I would need to see, which uh, I'm very experienced. I have done similar things before. I'm thinking of upping things slightly. This just sounds like a lot to do ahead of a very big event.
0: Yeah. Keegan, you stacked events like yeah. this kind of – close to one another, right?
1: Um,
3: uh, honestly, I, I mean, I don't really race nearly. I think I, I think I race less than almost all my competitors. It seems like, um, so I'm of the opinion that less is more, um, I would probably, you know, pick two of those three races. If you really want to do the mountain bike race because it's a fun mm-hmm. race and you've done it before or something, then don't do the other two or maybe only pick one of those. Um, but yeah, I'd probably have to agree that not doing it is probably best. Um, it's like less is more, you know, like sometimes it's better, it's better just to train and focus on what you want to do. It also like don't know how far of a drive or flying these races are travel. Like if they're all within like an hour drive, maybe you can, maybe you can do them all, but it's still probably best to only pick two of those. Um, and yeah, I mean, a six hour mountain bike race is going to take a fair bit out of you. And that like two weeks out is kind of a good time to get your last few good training days in. And that that ride is just going to take away from that. So, and just add extra stress. So yeah, I think probably take that one out.
0: It can be easy to, when we spend all this time training and building for these race seasons to want to maximize the time that we spend doing that and get the most out of it and try to do everything. Right. Can any of you relate yeah. to that?
2: <laughs> I, I think, people have a tendency to add a lot more than necessary leading up to big events also because i think it is i think it's a result of insecurity to Mm -hmm. be honest i think that we get close to races we get nervous we want to keep adding confidence we want to keep proving to ourselves that it's going to go well um you see it in training too people want to prove to themselves that they're fit enough to race and next thing you know they're basically simulating the race days leading up to it or their openers are getting longer and longer because they want to prove to themselves that they're ready. And it's, it's insecurity. The confidence is what it takes to say, I know that I'm ready. I have done enough and I'm going to show it tomorrow.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think mm-hmm. that insecurity shows itself sometimes too, when you have one event or one goal, if that's the only thing that you're building towards and working on I know that I feel sometimes pressure, like, well, if that goes poorly, then that means I will have nothing else to come away with from this season or from this time or for that Mm -hmm. whole block of training. And so it can be easy to fall into that trap of wanting to do more so that you have more redeeming things to take away from a season. But that might not necessarily be the best approach. So,
2: Andy, yeah, Yeah. uh,
0: don't do too much. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, Ivy, I can definitely relate to that emotion of feeling like, I don't know, you almost need to pad your season with other things because it can be really scary. And I think that's where other goals come in, even if they're process goals. Um, So that you can walk away and hold your head high of even if your race, even if your result in that race didn't go the way you planned, you can still look at those process goals and say, you know what? It wasn't all a wash though, because I checked off all of these things. Therefore I made progress this year.
0: Mm -hmm. Totally. Super sound advice, Hannah. Thank you so much. And thanks Keegan for joining us. Both of you best of luck this spring training block. Chad, we have work to do. <laughs>
1: sure. You're killing me.
0: Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. If you haven't signed up for trainer road and started your training plan yet, make sure you go to trainerroad.com and we are doing surveys for the podcast. We want to know what you want to listen to, what more you, what more of the things you like, what you don't like, go to trainerroad.com slash podcast. You can do the survey there and submit your questions for next
2: week's episode. Thanks y'all. Yeah. Thanks everybody. Thank you.